Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. You know, uh, if you had seen me like a year ago today uh, and you had just spent a little bit of time with me, you would have seen that I was driving this car that you see up here on the screen. It was a, a 2017 Hyundai Sonata. I'd gotten it used at a good price, got good gas mileage, got me from one place to the other. Perfectly fine car. And then this past fall, I was at a, a meeting at a local Christian school. I got out of that meeting at about 8 o'clock at night. I walked out into the parking lot, and the car was gone. It had been stolen. And uh, I could tell you for like two hours crazy stories about that month while my car was gone. But on day 29 of my car being missing, at about 8 o'clock at night, a policeman shows up at my house. And he knocks on my door, and he goes, good news, we found your car. Now, this was not good news to me because the next day they were going to pay me for my car, and I would have rather had the money than them find my car. But he goes, there's no damage to the exterior of your car. You're going to be able to drive it home. I want to take you there. I said, oh, I mean, okay. And he goes, but you need to go grab a flathead screwdriver. And I should have known at this point that this was like a real problem that was going to exist in my life. So I grab a flathead screwdriver, the, the policeman drives me to this like uh, pretty run-down apartment complex, you know, 15 minutes away or so, and there's like a fleet of stolen Hyundais that are all parked next to each other there. And uh, there's a whole bunch of policemen that are all there processing these cars, and my car was there with no damage to the outside. I have no idea how they got into my car. And, uh, but the inside is completely trashed like dirty, there is food wrappers everywhere, there is like cigarette and cigar butts all over the car, but most distressingly, there is just drugs all over my car. I mean, we're talking like it looked like a marijuana bomb exploded, it is open marijuana on every seat of the car, it is disgusting. But then the ignition column of my car is ripped out, and so the policeman spends 10 minutes teaching me how to start my car by jamming a flathead screwdriver into the ignition, and starting the car. This was a skill that I never knew that I needed in life, and I hope that I will never need again. And so uh, eventually, after a couple you know, tries, I figure out how to do this, and the policeman goes, well, you can drive your car home. And I go, are you gonna follow me back home? And he goes, no, 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 we got a lot of work to do here. And I go, oh, I'm sorry, I, maybe that came out wrong. I need you to follow me home. And he goes, nah, I told you, we've got a lot of work to do here. I go, hey, man, if I drive this car home that I'm using a, a screwdriver to drive and there are drugs all over the place, what happens if I get pulled over, right? Like, I'm going to go to jail. And so we have this, like, uh, and he was just doing his job. He was a good guy. Uh, we have this, like, five or ten minute, like, argument where I'm like, I need you to follow me home. And he keeps going, no, we've got work to do here. And so eventually he, he pulls out a business card and he goes, I've got a compromise for you. Here's my business card. If you get pulled over, just have the policeman call me. And I looked at him and I go, there is no compromise. You need to follow me home. And so eventually we fight for another couple minutes and he gets like a junior officer, like a guy lower on the totem pole to drive up there and then follow me home. And then I get the, you know, the pleasure of trying to, to clean this car out, right? And uh, I was thinking about that while reading this, this scripture we're going to be looking at today. Because, you know, there's times where we cannot compromise. And oftentimes the word compromise is held up as a good thing. And, and oftentimes in life it is. Like each side gives a little. But, you know, there are times where we can't 
compromise. And that's what we're going to see Jesus talking about in Revelation chapter 2 today. We're still in this sermon series this summer where we are looking at these letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John to churches throughout modern-day Turkey. And today we are looking at the, the letter to the church in Pergamos. Depending on uh, you know, which uh, Bible translation you read, you'll see that this city is either called Pergamos or Pergamum. That's because uh, different, part, different time periods in ancient Greece, it was called by different names. But it's the same city. And this was a huge, huge city back in Jesus' day. Uh, Pergamum was the, the provincial capital of the Roman Empire in modern-day Turkey. So it was where all the government offices were, huge trade routes, big city. But in the midst of it being a big Roman city, it also had a thriving church. And this is what Jesus says to them. This is the start of the letter to the church in Pergamum. He says, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, the one who has the sharp double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan lives. And so instantly in this letter, we find out that there is real persecution that is happening to these Christians. And this guy named Antipas was, was martyred for his faith. But what's really striking about this is, you know, there are seven different letters that Jesus writes. No place does he use stronger language about the city itself, right? It says, Satan's throne is in Pergamum. And then later on at the end, he says, Satan actually lives in your city, right? Like this is really strong language. And Pergamum was very similar to uh, all these Roman cities where there were temples to these Roman gods. And so there was a big hill that overlooked the city in Pergamum, and there was a huge temple to Zeus there. There was a big temple to Dionysius and another to Athena in the city. But what they were most famous for and what most you know, biblical scholars think that this Satan's throne thing is all about is that uh, it was the center of Roman emperor worship for the entire region. And so this you see right here, this is an actual like, uh, altar that was uh, recovered in Pergamum, and then they cut it out and moved it to, an, to uh, an art museum in Berlin. It's called the Pergamon Altar. It is the most well-preserved ancient temple piece that exists like today from antiquity. And this was the entrance to where you would walk in to go give sacrifices to and worship Caesar. And so Pergamum was this place where there was this incredible cult of worshiping the Roman emperor. And all throughout ancient Christian history, wherever the emperor worship was strongest was where church persecution was the strongest. And so that's probably what he's referring to here, like, hey, this is a pretty evil, demonic place that you guys are living in, but you're still faithful. And he, he builds them up for their faithfulness. But then he's got a critique, and it's a critique that's, I think, pretty interesting. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And you can see in yellow here this real critique that... Uh, in their church, there are people who are also believing in some false teachings. And uh, he says that the, there's people who follow the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know very much about the Nicolaitans, but we know an awful lot about the teachings of Balaam, 
Now, uh, this is an Old Testament reference, uh, Balaam, and maybe, I mean, he's a minor character, but maybe some of you are familiar with his story. So back in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are going to conquer the promised land, and uh, a foreign king named Balak did not want the Israelites to conquer his country. And so he actually hires a prophet by the name of Balaam. And Balaam was a guy who knew God, and he hires this guy, Balaam, to curse the Israelites so that they will, like, perish. Uh, And Balaam gets a message from God, don't do this. But Balaam wants the money, and so he's going to try to curse the Israelites anyway. And so he's going to curse the Israelites, and the donkey that he is riding keeps on stopping because uh, God won't let him go. And so he starts beating his donkey, and then it says that God opens up the mouth of the donkey and talks through him, and Balaam has a, uh, a conversation with a donkey. As the only person that we know that ever had a, a real conversation where the animal talked back. I don't know if anybody's familiar with this story at all, right? So uh, eventually, Balaam isn't able to curse the Israelites. God won't let him do it. And so uh, what he ends up doing is he's like, I got to find a way to compromise these Israelites. I'm getting paid to do this. And so what he does is he gets the foreign country to take all of their, their young women He sends them into the camp of the Israelites, and a whole bunch of the Israelite men start sleeping with these foreign women and then worshiping their gods. And so Balaam was able to subvert the Israelites by getting them to compromise who God had called them to be. And uh, this is pretty interesting. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was here, and I I got to talk about the letter to the church in Thyatira. And the letter in church in, in Thyatira he says that they've got Jezebel in their midst. And if you were here, I talked about Jezebel, but she was an Old Testament figure who led the people into just abandoning worship of God to worship foreign gods. Here in this letter, he says, you guys have Balaam in your midst, Old Testament character who was all about getting them to compromise their faith. Balaam never said, stop worshiping God. He knew who God was. He was a prophet. He was just a, a corrupt one. And he wanted them to compromise who they were. And uh, that's what Jesus is critiquing here. He says, compromise. And uh, what I think is interesting is that what Jesus is really getting out of this letter, he says that faithfulness is what we're called to, not compromise. Jesus insisted on faithfulness instead of compromise. And that was a real issue for the church in Pergamum. But I think that's also an issue that speaks to who we are today, right? Like there's always going to be this temptation to compromise who God has called us to be. You know, uh, our, our world in far too many ways is, is against who God says that we are supposed to be. And there's a real temptation to start to compromise. And I can still worship God and, you know what I mean? We want to have it both ways. And, and I think a compromise and the, the first thing that I think of when I think of church compromise, unfortunately, is uh, this guy you see up here on the screen. And, and I don't know him personally, uh, but uh, maybe some of you are familiar with this guy. His name is Rob Bell. And maybe 15, 20 years ago, he was uh, a really rising star in sort of the Christian world. He was a pastor of a huge church up in Michigan. He was a, a, a great writer and wrote some best-selling books that blessed people. He's still is an incredibly gifted public speaker. And uh, for a while, everybody's like, oh, this guy is sort of the future of what Christianity can look like in America. And then about 10 years ago, you started to see some things going in opposite direction. And he he wrote a book about how hell probably doesn't exist. 
And you can start to see like a little bit of compromise from what the Bible teaches. And he ended up having to step down as pastor of his church after that book came out. And then a couple of years later, you know, uh, he, he comes out and he goes, listen, you know, Christians probably have to just accept homosexual relationships. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, you see another compromise. And then uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, he gave a, a talk where he said that scripture is largely irrelevant to how we live our lives. You're like another compromise, right? You get this, like you start in one place, but as soon as you make one compromise, it's easier to make another, you know, it's easier to make another. And uh, suddenly you're not very close to where you originally started. And that, that's why Jesus is so big on, we got to be faithful. And uh, he, he explains exactly how that faithfulness can look in this last section here, which uh, is fascinating. He says, therefore repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And that is a, a weird illusion. And uh, I don't know if anybody's ever been down to the Cleveland Art Museum. There's this great art piece that shows Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth that's uh, you know, a reference to this passage in Revelation. I've never understood this painting because the sword appears to be going the opposite direction of what I would expect. It sort of looks like a circus guy who's eating a sword uh, instead of what I would have expected from this passage in Revelation, right? But Jesus is not actually saying that he's going to come and fight people with a sword. You know, like this is an allusion to something that we see all through the New Testament where when the Bible talks about itself, it references it as being a sword. The famous passage from Ephesians chapter 6 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. That this, uh, this thing that Jesus says, I'm going to fight against you with, it's not Jesus himself. He goes, I'm going to fight against you with my word. This is from Hebrews 4, same idea. He says, the word of God is living and effective, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to fight against you with the words of my mouth, he's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to convict you using the scriptures that I've called you to be faithful to, because too many of you have walked away from what I called you to. You know, uh, the Bible is really this place where we are called to be and to look for how God expects us to live our lives. And it's far too easy to start to walk away from it and to compromise. And he goes, guys, I need you to go back to what I called you to. You know, uh, what he's really trying to get at here is that the key to living faithfully in our culture is to be completely dedicated to scripture. If we are going to be believers who are going to live faithful lives where we don't compromise, the only way to do it is if we are completely dedicated to scripture. And so I want to share with you what I think are three ideas on how we can live completely dedicated to Scripture. And everybody's got their own walk with Christ, and so maybe one or two of these will be real simple. Maybe one or two of them will be challenging. But I want to share three of these ideas with you. I think that uh, if we are going to be people who, uh, wow, that did not look that way last night. Um, this is not your guys' fault. I'm sure this is my fault. Um, there's nothing harder than being a tech guy on Sundays because nobody notices you unless something goes wrong. Um, so I'm sure this is my fault. But faithful dedication to Scripture is going to be a daily practice. It's going to involve our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it is going to challenge and encourage us. And so uh, the first thing I want to talk about is how faithful devotion to Scripture will be a daily practice. You know, uh, the idea of sitting down to read scripture every single day, I think it sounds easy. And uh, I, in reality, I think it can often be an awful lot more difficult, right? 
You know, uh, it's like we've got these high ideals. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to read the Bible every single day. Anybody ever feel like your time just sort of like uh, it evaporates? You have no idea what happened to your time over the course of the day. You know, uh, everybody's got their own routines and everybody's got their own things. And so my wife often makes fun of me because like I get up at... 4.55 every single morning. I eat the same breakfast every day. I eat the same lunch every day. If I could wear a white shirt and black pants, I'd wear the same white shirt and black pants every day. Like, I'm pretty regimented. And even in a life that I think is pretty regimented, it can be so easy for that time with Christ to start to slip away, right? And uh, I know plenty of people, I've had plenty of conversations where people are like, I just don't have time in my day to, uh, to read scripture. And then you start talking to to people about how they spend their day and how much of our time is really wasted. Uh, And I mean this because this is true for me too. I mean, we've probably all done this. You you have a long day, you're tired, whatever it is after work. And so you sit down on the couch and you turn on the TV and four and a half hours later, you're still watching Netflix because it just keeps coming. You know what I mean? Or you sit down and and you're scrolling through Facebook and two hours later, you're like, well, I guess it's time for bed. You know what I mean? And uh, we have time for all kinds of meaningless stuff, but then we sit down and we make this excuse that somehow finding time for Jesus is too much. And uh, I think that if we're going to be people who are faithfully dedicated to Scripture, we got to start to orient our time that way. I mean, this is from the Old Testament, but I think both of these passages are pretty instructive. Uh, the, The book of Joshua says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. He goes, like, listen, you got to be in God's word day and night, and then your life is going to be better. I mean, that's a, a promise from the Bible. In Psalm 1, it says, How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of sinners, or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. And if you uh, read through the Old Testament, it's something like 112 times there's this reference to day and night. And it's either to meditate on God's word or pray. You know what I mean? That there are these things that should define our days. And we got to be serious that it's probably more important to spend time in scripture each day than almost anything else that we do. And uh, we probably have to orient our day that way. You know, and everybody's, you know, schedules are different. Uh, for me, it is like, I got to get in the Bible every single morning. Because if I don't do it right away, I got to be honest, like, I won't do it. You know what I mean? I've, I've fought that battle in my life, and I've failed it too many times. It's got to be first thing in the day. But I have, I have friends who it is like the last thing before they go to bed. I have a friend who is in the business world who takes a 90-minute lunch every day, and the first 45 minutes is his Bible time. But whatever time makes sense, we have to be serious about squeezing it in and making it a priority. Uh, In some ways, I mean, Jesus says this when he's being tempted by Satan. He goes, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I mean, I'm not saying don't eat, but uh, I am saying like we got to be serious about how important scripture is and then start to act like it with our time. Then uh, faithful devotion to scripture is going to be a daily practice And it's going to involve our brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, this is something that I I think we just don't talk about very often. Most of us, when we sit down to read the Bible, it probably looks like this, right? It is you, and it is a Bible. And you are spending time reading it personally. 
That is good. So please don't take anything I'm about to say is that that is not good. That is good. I also think it's incomplete. And uh, let me tell you why. You know, uh, we are so blessed that we live in the 21st century. All of us probably have Bibles and all of us probably have phones that have the Bible on them too, right? But for most of Jewish history and most of Christian history, that would have been crazy. They didn't have the Bible, and even if they did, they were illiterate and they couldn't read it anyway. And so most of of our history as, as followers of God have been people who experienced the Bible together, having it read to them. And uh, when the Bible was written, it was written to be read out loud to people. And uh, this notion of I'm going to have my own personal Bible and do this myself, it's just not something that the people in the Bible would have ever recognized. In fact, this letter that we are working our way through was read out loud in the church. And you know what's interesting is when, when you do something together, right, they read that letter out loud you know what's going to happen immediately after they read it out loud? They're going to talk about it. You know what I mean? And suddenly you've got this interaction between your brothers and sisters that often actually helps your understanding. And I think we far too often lose this. We end up talking about scripture with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And some of you have probably been in small group Bible studies before, right? Where you're doing this regularly and you're getting into the word together. And my guess is that you grow more from your small group Bible study than you do from what I'm saying right now. That's how valuable this whole notion of our brothers and sisters speaking uh, about the Bible with us is. Uh, For uh, the last couple of years, I've actually been in this Bible reading group with the, the guys that you see up here on the screen. There are five of us. And so the bottom three, Mandel and Jason and Dave, are men who either currently work with me or used to, because Jason just moved to St. Louis. And then the guy on the top there's name is Oliver, and uh, he is, uh, does campus ministry for the Navigators up at Wayne State in Detroit. And so for the last three years, uh, we read a couple of chapters of scripture every day. And so each one of them read it, I read it, and then as I highlight stuff in my Bible, it sends them what I highlighted. And, it get, and whatever I comment on, they, uh, they see. And what, what happens over the course of every single day is that I read scripture, and I'm blessed by it. But then I, I hear Mandel's thoughts, and I go, oh, I hadn't considered that. And then you know, Dave will ask a question, and then Oliver will answer this question. And, it, and it, what happens is all throughout the day, my own personal Bible study is enhanced by my brothers talking about it. And it's, it's pretty awesome, actually. It's one of my favorite things that, that happens each day. I actually learn more because I'm doing it with my brothers in Christ. And I think far too often we have made Bible study personal when for most of church history, Bible study has been corporate. And uh, I think that we got to figure out how do we start to get that back? And, and maybe that's small group Bible studies. Maybe that's like Bible plans, like the one that I'm in. And maybe it's something I've never considered. But how often do we spend time with our brothers and sisters in Christ? And we can talk about stuff that's important, right? We talk about family, and we talk about sports, and we talk about politics, and we never talk about the most important thing, and that's scripture. And I think we're missing out on something when we don't live out our Bible study with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So faithful devotion to scripture is gonna be a daily practice. It's gonna involve our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then it's gonna challenge and encourage us. You know, uh, I guess, I would bet that if we were to go through this room, everybody in here's got their favorite Bible passage or two, right? 
Like, Betty's going to have her favorite Bible passage. I've got my favorite Bible passage. JoJo's got her favorite Bible passage. And I bet that if we were to do this, and I used to be a teacher once upon a time, and I, I would do this in my class where I'd be like, everybody write out their favorite Bible passage, and everybody's Bible passage would be in the same vein. It would be something like this. This is from Deuteronomy 31. It's a very famous passage. It says, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Amazing Bible passage about how God's going to be with us wherever we go. And I would bet that everybody's favorite Bible passage is some super encouraging passage, passage about God doing great things in their life, right? Those are the things that we like tape to our mirrors. Those are the things that we memorize. All of these encouraging Bible passages. I have yet to encounter the person whose favorite Bible passage is give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. I don't know anybody whose favorite Bible passage is thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Uh, it's sort of like, I think we're predisposed to when we read scripture, we look for all of the encouraging bits, right? Oh, I was so fed, I was so encouraged afterwards. And none of us are like, oh yeah, I was really convicted. You know what I mean? We sort of like to see this challenging stuff that's in scripture, and I think our first uh, reaction is to explain it away or to assume that it's about somebody else because God couldn't possibly be saying it to me. We want all the encouragement often. We don't really want any of the challenge. But this passage we looked at in Hebrews chapter 4 says something totally different. It says, The word of God is living and effective. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. That if we are going to do real Bible reading, there are going to be times where the Bible is going to cut us. And that cutting is not because God is, is mad at us or hates us. It's because God knows what actually has to be cut out of our lives. And so there's going to be times where God is going to challenge us with how we spend our time, with how we spend our money, with our relationships, with how we speak, that we need to be open when we are reading to God challenging us, not just encouraging us. And I think it is so easy to spend our Bible time looking for those mountaintop words and uh, to try to really gloss over real quickly the places where God wants to change our lives. And if we, if we start ignoring that stuff, it becomes easier and easier to live those compromised lives. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was principal at Lutheran East out in Cleveland Heights, and I had this wonderful senior student. Her name was Jerry. Uh, she was the best student in the school. She was, you know, number one in her class. She was a great athlete, high-character young woman. And she had never in her four years gotten into trouble at our school until her sister became a freshman. So Jerry was a senior. She had a freshman sister. And in September of that year, uh, I don't exactly remember why, because this was 10 or 11 years ago, but they got into an argument in the hallway that, you know, sisters will sometimes do. But it didn't, like, resolve quickly, and so it got louder and it got louder. And then Jerry's screaming at the top of her lungs, and she drops all kinds of profanity on her sister in the hallway in front of a bunch of kids. Like, we had to separate them. We thought that they, these sisters were going to fight, you know? And so I bring Jerry back to my office, and she's crying. She's never been in my office before for a bad reason. You know what I mean? I've talked to her tons of times. And we're talking through the incident, and I go, hey, Jerry, you know what? We are a Christian school, and uh, Paul says in Ephesians that no crude or obscene language should come out of our mouths. And so uh, you're suspended from school tomorrow. She sheds a couple of tears, and then she goes, 
I understand, Mr. Steinman. Thank you. I remember this very clearly because I've suspended kids hundreds of times, and Jerry's the only person who has ever thanked me for suspending her from school. And so, uh, so she, she, lives, she takes her suspension, she misses the day of school, and then she comes back. So this is two days later, and uh, Jerry was captain of the volleyball team. And we had uh, chartered a school bus to take our girls to a volleyball game after school that day. The bus was supposed to be there at 3.30, and it didn't show up. Doesn't show up at 3.45, doesn't show up at 4. 4.15, I'm like desperately trying to get this busing company on the phone. Where are you? You gotta take our girls to this volleyball game. At 4.30, I finally get this woman on dispatch on the phone. And she goes, hey, we screwed up. We don't have a bus, we don't have a bus driver. Nobody's coming for your girls. Which means that you know, like our girls are gonna forfeit this game and we were really bad. It was like the only game we were gonna win all year. And, uh, and so it's just a, a really bad outcome for our kids. It makes the school look bad and I lose my mind, right? And so I'm screaming at this woman on the phone. I remember exactly where I was. I was there's this hallway between our gym and the weight rooms on the other side. I'm standing in the hallway, screaming at this woman on the phone. I use a whole bunch of language that I should not use and I cannot use and I'm ashamed of, right? And so I, I get done, I hang up the phone, and I turn around, and Jerry's standing right behind me. And uh, she looks at me and she goes, you know, Mr. Simon, we are a Christian school. And the <laughs> Apostle Paul says that uh, no crude or obscene language should ever come out of our mouths. And I gotta tell you, I, there are plenty of times I've read the Bible and I go, oh no. I've never felt, oh no, quite like that before, right? You know, like if we're going to be honest with ourselves, the Bible's going to challenge things about our lives, and we need that. We can't run away from it. Because, you know, I think too often uh, we, we fall into this, this world where we assume that uh, our goals are good, and Jesus' job is to, like, give us rocket fuel to get to our goals. And that's not what the Bible describes. Instead, it says that Jesus wants to lead us. And if we aren't letting Jesus challenge us, then we're not letting Jesus lead us. Which means that when we read scripture, we got to be looking for the challenge, just like we are looking for the encouragement. You know, a faithful devotion to scripture is going to be those three things. It's going to be a daily practice. It's going to involve our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's going to challenge and encourage us. And the, the more I thought about this and the more I read this letter, I kept coming back to the start that we looked at. You know, because there's this idea, be faithfully devoted, don't compromise. And I kept coming back to this, this uh, line where it says, you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. And uh, there's these seven letters that we've been reading over the course of this summer, and there's only one contemporary person who is named in those letters. And it's Antipas. You know what I mean? And so he's like being held up as this guy who was faithful. He didn't compromise. He's sort of like what the, he's trying to get everybody to be. He was fully devoted. He didn't compromise. But you know what he ended up doing is when he didn't compromise, he ended up sacrificing. And uh, I think this is what this is all about, that we are called to a life of sacrifice, not a life of compromise. And it's easy to, to stand here and say, like, don't compromise. You'll sometimes hear people use no compromise as like a rallying cry, right? But I don't think that that's really the rallying cry, the rallying cry is, what does it mean to sacrifice? Because that's who is lauded in this, is Antipas, and the, the Jesus whom we follow is the king of sacrifice, right? He didn't compromise, but instead he poured himself out for every single one of us. 
Our example isn't just walking around yelling we're not compromising. Our example is how do we lovingly sacrifice for the world around us? I was talking to a a good friend of mine two weeks ago, actually, and I had this wonderful, really, uh, it was a blessing of a conversation. And so this guy is my age, um, so he's middle-aged, and uh, while I am married, he has always been single, Um, just never been in a relationship, and there have been times where this really pains him. You know what I mean? Like, he, he wants a relationship, he's lonely, uh, but he's in the business world, and uh, he works a, a pretty tough job, but then he is super involved in his church, and he does youth ministry there, and so he's there a couple of nights a week doing youth ministry, and then he's usually there for most of Sunday, you know, volunteering and working in the youth ministry, and he's been praying about, do I, do I chase after a relationship, which is something like he really wants in his heart, and he had told me that he had been reading the Apostle Paul in some of his letters, where Paul talks about how uh, marriage is a gift, but that singleness can also be a gift. And that sometimes it is God calls people to be single because they have more free time to sink into ministry. And he goes, that is something we should celebrate. And the Apostle Paul talks about this. It's not marriage is good, singleness is bad. Paul says marriage is good, singleness can be good. And so my buddy was like, you know, I really want a relationship, but the more that I read scripture, the more I believe that I'm called to invest my time here and not in a relationship. Isn't that what it means to sacrifice? You know what I mean? To really live for God? He's like, I got to give this thing up because God is calling me somewhere else. I really think that's the heart of what God is getting at in Revelation chapter 2. And it's sort of, I think, where he finishes. This is the end of the letter. It's one verse. It says, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. And there's a bunch of references there that probably made sense 2,000 years ago, but that I think we struggle with today. But I want to talk about the last two references in that. Uh, It says that he gives them a white stone with a new name. You know, if you're going to throw a big party or you're going to have a big wedding, you'd probably send an RSVP out, right? And then you would, like, follow up and figure out who was going to be there. Well, they couldn't send RSVPs in the ancient world, and they didn't have tickets that they could print. And so what we know from antiquity is when a huge wedding was going to happen, the wealthiest families would go out, and they would pay somebody to find white rocks and to round them off and polish them perfectly. And then they would carve on those rocks a certain word, and you would get the rock, and you would hand it when you went in to get entrance to the huge wedding. And so uh, when Jesus goes, hey, I'm going to give you guys a white stone, he says, I'm inviting you to this huge wedding. And the rest of Revelation is the story of how it's going to be a wedding between Jesus and his people that's going to be a celebration that never ends. He goes, if you guys are faithful, you're going to be invited into this wedding that's never going to end where you're going to be in fellowship with me. And he says that instead of carving some random thing on that rock, he says, I'm going to carve in there a new name for you. And that new name is something we see throughout scripture that when God calls somebody and he gives them a purpose, he often changes their name. And so Abram becomes Abraham, and Jacob becomes Israel, and Saul becomes Paul. And Jesus talks to the church in Pergamum, and I think he's talking to us today. And he goes, when you are faithful, and you are devoted to me, and you don't compromise, I am going to give you a new name and a new purpose, and I'm going to welcome you into this wedding feast that's never 
going to end. And that is what we are living for more than anything else. Please pray with me. God, I want to thank you so much uh, for your grace that has called us, and God, for the fact that you have gifted us your word to lead us and to guide us, to encourage us and to challenge us. And God, uh, in a world that far too often is calling us to compromise and walk away from you, I want to ask that we would be believers who are fully devoted to you, that we are examining your word, that we are spending time in it, letting your spirit talk to us, that uh, we are encouraging our brothers and sisters in it, you know, on a regular basis, God, and that we would be open to both being encouraged by you and challenged by you, that we would live those faithful lives, God, and that we would be entering into your eternal wedding feast as a result of it. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.